The Your Hometown Tour makes a stop in the village of Hanover Park. Ride along with us as we show you all the sights and sounds of America's global village. Sponsored by Illinois Lottery. Doing good and supporting Illinois communities. And by McDonald's. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, Hanover Park's day today on WGN Radio. And Rich Snodgrass is the superintendent of special facilities at Center Court Athletic Club in Hanover Park. It's part of the park district there. Hey, Rich, this is John. You're on WGN Radio. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you very much. A colleague of mine went out there and said that is the coolest place he's ever seen. Oh, thanks. We're a little bit different out here. We've Why got you... about... 20, we've got about 21 pickleball courts. We, we're a 10-court tennis facility, but every court is lined for pickleball. So we've, we have one standalone pickleball court. So we have 21 courts. And in the way the it's, – it's in a dome. So there's two domes. So one of the domes is just a standalone dome that is kept up by air. And then the other dome is actually a permanent structure. And sunlight comes in, so it's sort of like you're playing outside, but it's it's crazy busy. We're, we're busy all day long. Yeah. I'll bet especially these days. Like, I wonder what the ratio used to be of tennis courts to nobody playing on the tennis courts compared to well, tennis courts yeah. and pickleball courts. Yeah, I mean... Tennis is one of those sports where it used to be busy in the mornings, and then between 12 and 4, it was dead at most tennis clubs. And then 4 o'clock, all the kids get out of school, and they're coming back in. But with pickleball, um, they're at our door at 530 in the morning, (laughs) and they're here. We have open play from 12 to 3, which is one of the reasons we started it, because that's our dead time. And there's between 75 and 85 people playing pickleball. And it's just pickup games, or are they leagues? Are they organized, like I'm playing you, or you just show up and they pair off? It's called open play. So they show up, and we, we have a monitor out there, and they sort of put you in your, you know, 3-5, 4-0, 4-5. It's classified as courts. So we try to keep you in your own little area. And they usually play, you know, finish their game, two on, two off. So two new people come in. And, you know, it's pretty much self-run. People rotate and you know it's 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 a very very social game so that's what's so great about it you know the club's busy people are just hanging out so do they charge what's the charge on this this is a uh, park district facility but i assume folks pay to play yeah we have a membership uh, which we have one membership which is 150 dollars a year but you pay court fees so all the open plays are included for free but if you want to book a court at any other time it's a court free and it usually averages out to about $3 an hour. And then we have a membership that's $350 a year and it's all fees included. So you just book your court and there's no fee. This is uh, I'm guessing a, a new revenue stream for a park district like yours. Oh, it's been a huge revenue stream and it's, yeah, it, it's brought life to our club again. I mean, we've got a lot of people in our dead times. It's just, We've got a lot of traffic coming in, and it's actually grown our tennis program even more because people are coming. 
you know, a lot of people have seen the building and they've just wondered what was in here. So it's it's bringing a lot of people into the club and the park district for sure. Rich, have you had to manage any snark between the tennis players and the pickleball community? Oh, there's all kinds of that. It's uh, well, the pickleball is louder. So tennis, it's it's sort of taken over. But with our setup here, I have six tennis courts on one side and then four on the other. So I'm sort of setting it up like I have a tennis club and a pickleball club. Um, I can keep the four courts on one side, tennis only. And then the six courts I use for pickleball. So there's 13 courts over there. So we use that for all of our open plays. And it's they're getting used to each other now. And uh, it's it's getting a lot better. Well, you know, that's really what I was going to say, is that uh, when the phenomenon erupted a couple of years ago, we talked about it all the time. And there were stories and lawsuits and people moving or just upset. And it seems like it is what it is. And people have sort of figured out how to live with each other, right? Oh, yes. Yes, They're living with each other. And honestly, right now, in the two and a half years, we went from no pickleball now we have about 800 members. <laughs> well, then that's a, that's a good problem to have. Uh, by the way, is that just for Hanover Park folks, or can anybody get in the league or you know have a season pass, that sort of thing? Anybody can get in. It's it's for everybody. So we do we do offer it to everybody, and we have, we have people that drive over an hour to be here. No kidding. What's because, your what's your address because, over there? I know you're in. Um, uh, it says Hanover Park. Where exactly are you located? 1919 Walnut Avenue. 1919 Walnut Avenue. All right. Um, I'm out of time. Anything else you want to make sure we know before I let you go, Rich? No, this is a place to be. If you're ever looking to, anybody's looking to play, we definitely have plenty of players. And we have beginners all the way up to four, five, and plus. So, I know some folks named Snodgrass in the Joliet Manuka area. You're not one of them, are you, Rich? I am not one of them, no. Well, they're good folks, and you sound like a good guy, too. Congratulations. He's the superintendent of special facilities, center court athletic club manager at the Hanover Park District. Well done, Rich. Thanks for your time today. All right. Thank you, sir. Thanks a lot. Abrar Alhidi is here, technology reporter for CNET at CNET.com. Abrar, John Williams, thanks for joining us today. How are you? Thanks. I'm doing well. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, we were talking about cars a little while ago and the hybrid Prius, which is a very popular and environmentally friendly car. But I know there was a lot of hope pinned on what Apple would do with a self-driving electric car, as I recall. What's the latest on that? This is something that was rumored for so long, and we never really got any concrete confirmation, but it seems like the rumors were true. But now it looks like Apple has Nick's that plan is no longer pursuing an Apple-branded car. Instead, they're kind of reallocating those employees to, this shouldn't come as a surprise, but AI. That's really where companies are refocusing. And so, you know, we never will see an Apple car. You know, Lord knows what it would have looked like if it had rolled out. But it was very much, you know, Apple's very secretive about things. But sometimes, you know, things slip through the cracks and people had a lot of speculations. But we'll never see what that could have been. I wonder what made them think they would or should get into the car business. I know it's very, you know, technologically driven and they're a tech company, but a phone and a laptop are not an automobile. 
Exactly. And it did seem like kind of a strange leap. I think even, you know, people who are big Apple fans thought, what is Apple doing making a car? But, you know, the fact is that electric cars are a really big deal and, you know, self-driving cars are the future. And so I think Apple thought, hey, we could we could do something here. But uh, I think they realized that there are other places where they could be uh, delegating those that expertise. Is that a given? Self-driving cars are the future? I think electric cars are, although it yeah. seems like the technology has not been able uh, got ahead of the demand but do you think that um self-driving cars are absolutely going to happen you know we're already seeing a few companies like waymo which is owned by google they're all over san francisco right now cruise which is owned by gm they had to actually pull out of san francisco for the time being because there were some issues there's a lot of things that are still being figured out here because you know the technology is getting better but it's still you know there's no human behind the wheel if there's a reason where they need to stop because of an emergency. There have been some incidents, but these companies are really pushing to move into more cities. So it is only a matter of time before we see them pop up more. Whether or not people adopt them, that's another question. There's a story on CNET about how AI might actually rescue us from some phone scammers, if I read this correctly. That's right. This is actually a use for AI that I am very supportive of. Yeah. Uh, so this is... She gong! She gong! All right, I'll just uh, pick it up here while we reconnect. It says here there are plenty of tools out there for filtering and blocking spam calls, but what about the calls you actually answer? Oh, no kidding. So this isn't just keeping us from getting scammed, but this is like mid-scam? Like I've, I've picked up the phone? Yeah, exactly. So you're, you'll be on the phone having a conversation, and then this, this AI will essentially alert you if anything seems suspicious. And one of those things could be like, they ba- it basically analyzes the language. So if there's somebody who's asking for personal information and that seems like a red flag, this will actually jump in and say, hey, maybe you should not, this seems a little suspicious. And then you as the, as the human can decide whether or not to hang up and, and or ask more questions about why the AI thinks this call is suspicious. But it's interesting because, you know, a lot of the scam blocking uh, happens before you answer the call. But then once you answer, what happens? then and then it could be a little bit too late uh, but this could be a solution to that would it be a third voice then in that phone conversation it seems like it it seems like something that would kind of speak and alert you that that something is going on here um, and I, I just think that's that's such a fascinating thing because you know there's a lot of credit card scams and and uh, you know it, sometimes it is too late when someone is already deep in the conversation but yeah I would kind of chime in and let you know that maybe you shouldn't proceed with this one Would have helped that New York Magazine writer who lost $50,000, wouldn't it? Yeah, that's right. That is a very timely example, exactly. (laughs) Well, I can imagine what that's like, though. So there Yuri is, and he's telling you that your Amazon order has been compromised. And then suddenly a voice comes on saying, hey, John, I'm not sure Yuri has your best interest at heart. So that's kind of fascinating. Let's hear it for AI in that case, as long as the AI is legit and not another layer of scam. Um, exactly. TikTok. And that's another concern because, yeah. TikTok is removing even more music as it argues with UMG. I've been following this a little bit. So are a lot of those uh, artists still off the platform? They are, unfortunately. And I can tell you as a huge Taylor Swift fan, I'm still heartbroken by this because <laughs> half my videos are muted. Uh, <laughs> but 
this is um, they're now kind of expanding this. I, I kind of hoped that this would have been solved by now, um, but they're actually removing even more songs. So now what TikTok has to do because they couldn't agree with UMG is they're now taking down songs that were written or co-written by by, by artists who are signed to UMG. So even if the artist who, who sings the song, you know, isn't signed to Universal Music Group, if there's a, a writer or a co-writer who is involved in some way. Um, so we're seeing songs from Harry Styles and SZA all being taken down as well. So every day there's just, there's more, I, I noticed more uh, clips that I had have been muted as well. UMG is the group representing the artists, and then you've got TikTok, and the music from those artists appears on that platform. Is it that, mm-hmm. that they aren't getting compensated at all, or they're not getting compensated enough? The argument that UMG makes is that artists are not getting compensated enough. And then interestingly, what I actually think is the more fascinating argument here is TikTok has become really this um, this place where people use AI to remix artists. They use artists' voices to make new versions of songs. And, and TikTok uh, and UMG is not happy with this because the artists don't get compensated for that, for their voices being used in these AI kind of machines. Um, so it's kind of telling because these these record labels are kind of cracking down on the use of AI um, and and how people are using artists to kind of create brand new songs. So uh, Taylor Swift can afford this, but maybe some of the up-and-coming artists, the people we don't know much about, would forego the extra payment in lieu of being on a TikTok video for which they're not being highly compensated. I mean, that's how you might get discovered or rediscovered. I, I wonder how the artist that UMG represents feels about this. That's exactly right. You know, TikTok is is really where people find new music. And for the smaller artists, this is really how their careers grow. There have been so many people lately who, you know, the exposure is more important than the money. The money is always important. The artists want to get paid fairly. But you're right. Someone who's, you know, a billionaire like Taylor Swift is probably going to be okay. But if you're a smaller artist who just wants to be discovered and, and expand their platform, this is going to be a huge blow to you. You know what I was thinking of as I've been following the story was the long border about five or six years ago, was it that long ago, who had a Fleetwood Mac song? And I don't remember if that was, was that tick, was that early TikTok? And we just but, saw him yeah. rolling along, and, and then Fleetwood Mac was none too happy about that unlicensed use. They eventually made him pull that down, but he was a cool yeah. dude, and he made that old song pop again, you know? Yeah, absolutely. And that's been the really cool thing about TikTok for me, is, is seeing all these songs like, um, from, you know, decades ago suddenly have this resurgence because someone discovers that someone posts something, it goes viral. And it's sometimes the best thing that's ever happened to a group, even if they, you know, are still prominent. They, they have this resurgence of popularity. Abrar Alhidi is a technology reporter for CNET. Nice to talk to you again. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. This is the Wintrust Business Lunch. By the way, a little while ago, we had on Ray Kaplan, the student debt relief expert, the attorney, and then I went on a little harangue afterwards saying that when students rack up huge debt studying for disciplines that tend not to pay well enough to ever pay off the debt, the universities should at least have a conscience. My grand scheme is that after your sophomore year, if you've reached a certain limit, the university should not continue to enroll you if you have to continue to borrow money. (laughs) said an enrollment officer. But I did get this note from a listener that says, Hey, John, this is from a friend of mine in Peoria. Our youngest daughter went to Columbia in Chicago and became an art conservation and restoration specialist. And we racked up well over $100,000 in loans, only to have her find out that unless she got her master's, she could only make $15 an hour. 
She's now a second-grade teacher in Denver. We are working with Ray Kaplan and are optimistic that relief is possible. These loans, of course, were Parent PLUS loans, and luckily we're now working in the public service sector, so there is hope. But there's one person who at least agreed with my grand theory. Michael Miller is the economics professor at Western Washington University and a professor emeritus at DePaul University, a regular guest on all things economics on the Wintrust Business Lunch. Hi, Michael. Welcome back. Uh, John, thank you again for the invitation to join you. Hey, what did you think of my little harangue there, my theory about the obligation that, at least in, in theory, universities have to make sure that the students don't find themselves deeply in debt? You know, maybe information would be the key. They could provide these students, say, okay, what is the average income of students in your major compared to, say, petroleum engineering? And uh, they'll find that maybe this is not the best uh, idea. But um, I, I don't think the university can stop an adult from, from making a contract to borrow. My, but I get your point. I understand yeah. why you feel the way you do. Well, my, my, my idea is very big brother-ish, right? Like maybe yeah. it is my business if I want to rack up debt. And by the way, maybe I'll get more satisfaction at a $40,000 a year job with debt in my rear window than I would making $140,000 and less debt. And by the way, not everybody can be a, a chemical engineer. So shut no, up. Oh, that's right. So, so shut up, John. Uh, yes. <laughs> well, you know, some uh, economists have argued that the university should be on the hook for the loans as much as the students, because the universities were the recipient of the money, not the students per se. That's interesting. And so maybe the idea was that universities, if a student all of a sudden doesn't start paying, that the lender could come to the university and say, well, you got all this money, <laughs> and uh, maybe you should pay for part of it. And, and then it would be... Yeah, that's that was it. It never went anywhere, but it was certainly a, a, an interesting idea. That's the kind of cockamamie idea I thoroughly endorse. And really, the students just a pass through. <laughs> the money goes from the bank yeah. to the university through the student, but not that they don't get something out of it. They get an education. Oh, and they it do means to earn money. Sure. But but um, right. let's not completely ignore how beneficial it is to the school. Um, yeah. I, you shared a statistic with my producer that surprised me, that between the ages of 25 and 54, what percentage of the U.S. population is regarded as disabled? Start there, Michael. What's going on? Yeah, it was, uh, it's 9.5% as of 2022, and I took that from the article, and that is taken from the U.S. Census. I thought at first that this was in the labor force, but this is of the general population. People in that age bracket, 9.5% uh, are disabled. And what the, the point of the article was to find out, was there any change, say, pre-pandemic versus post-pandemic regarding people considered disabled and their labor market be, um, uh, outcomes? And it was, I thought it was a very interesting outcome, is that when we, when we had that move to the work from home, all of a sudden, disabled people that maybe wouldn't be able to get to a job site easily and so forth, there was this chance that they could be hired, they can clearly do the work, the company maybe could provide the technology necessary, and maybe then the participation rate of disabled workers in the labor force would rise. And the findings of the study were quite astounding. That We, we know there's always a gap, there is a gap between the participation rate 
uh, of the abled and the disabled, and the unemployment rate is higher for this disabled, and the wages are lower. But in every single category between post and pre-pandemic, based primarily on uh, working from home, the gaps between the disabled and the abled has uh, been dramatically de- decreased. For example, the unemployment rate, the gap is down 75%. So you have a lot of people who were on the mar- uh, on the sidelines with regard to the labor market who are now fully participating. Uh, and, and the unemployment rate is not nearly as high as it used to be. And as I said in the, when I was uh, writing to Pete, it's a win-win because, you know, with – a lot of old people like me looking at retirement, the labor force is going to have a major change and firms are going to need to find workers somewhere. And here's an untapped resource. As long as they're willing to allow these people to uh, work from home, which we now find actually works, it doesn't affect productivity. Uh, and so it it is a viable option that uh, is to the advantage of, a, of a, a group of people who could certainly use the advantage. And the market in general, one in 10 people between 25 and 54 are, according to the census, disabled. I wonder how so. We're not talking about older Americans. We're talking about younger oh. Americans, 25 to 54. Yep. What, what, I wonder what um, disables them. Now, see, I think some of that, of course, would be uh, physically disabled. Yeah. But I think a lot of it is goes back to that you can uh, argue you are disabled with regard to uh, psychological or, or, you know, emotional in terms of stress and depression and things like that. And a case could be made with the use, I believe, of a, of a psychiatrist and a therapist that this person is, un, is considered to the in the definition of what we would call disabled, and therefore maybe special arrangements need to be made for a worker uh, with these uh, with these uh, this condition. And a lot of times, uh, employers, if they had their choice of employees, they would certainly not pick a person with, uh, let's just say, a problem when they could get somebody who doesn't have that problem. And now, with the changing nature of the labor force, and finding out that this actually can work, especially if they work from home. Uh, again, it's, I think it's a, it's a win-win, both for the, the corporations, for the employer, and for the employee. I think it's a great, it's a very eye-opening uh, study in my mind. I would imagine a lot of those people on the sidelines are motivated workers when they finally get to earn a paycheck from home. Exactly right. Uh, see, that's, that's the one thing that they even say, you know, uh, there's a study that tried to figure out what could you do? What would be the things you should do to never to avoid ever being in what we would call poverty? And one, of course, is to to finish high school. Uh, second is to avoid having children before you're married. But the third one was to get your first job because you learned that wow, working isn't so bad, and I get this paycheck, and and it's rewarding. Work can be rewarding both uh, in terms of uh, your your mind as well as your your pocketbook. And so if the disabled then could, could feel, they also, there'll be the, you know, the self-worth that I, I just feel like I'm a better oh, yeah. part of society, that yeah. I'm producing and, and I'm being rewarded for that production so that I have to, I do it at home. So what, what's the difference? As long as the production is being done, um, it, that's, that to me is what matters. We've got more business news on the Wintrust Business Lunch with Steve Grzanich. Start your timer. It's time for the Wintrust Business Minute, sharing Chicago's business news of the day. 
Walgreens run Village MD says it will close its primary care clinics in Illinois. It's part of the drugstore chain's ongoing cost cutting. The closures will happen in April. There are six clinics in all. Five are standalone clinics and one is attached to an existing Walgreens pharmacy. One of the clinics in Elk Grove opened just six months ago. Walgreens took a majority stake in Village MD in 2021 and had plans to open hundreds of new clinics attached to Walgreens stores before pulling back on those expansion plans. Illinois lawmakers are working on a bill that would force companies to disclose so-called junk fees. Those add-ons are frequently seen on concert tickets, hotel bills, and bills for other services. The measure would amend Illinois' Consumer Fraud and Deceptive Business Practices Act to prohibit hidden and misleading fees. Companies could be fined up to $50,000 per violation. Some companies have already started disclosing fees before being required by law to do so. I'm Steve Krasanich, and that's your Wintrust Business Minute. Here's some business of food with Steve Alexander. Yeah, thank you, and let's see who's on the phone. Joe Reckinger, and I farm for a living. And Joe has a weather story from Tuesday night's storm. That's about the most wind that I've ever seen in my life here. More from Joe after I thank the Chevy Silverado and ChevyDriveChicago.com for sponsoring us today. There's never been a better time to put a Silverado in your toolbox. Joe Reckinger farms west of Batavia on CV Road. He's 66 lives there with his wife Debbie and their son Dan is now the fifth generation to farm the land. Joe's lived there all his life and does not remember a storm like Tuesday nights that blew down one of the oldest barns in the state. Uh, the barn, the original barn that was built in 1882, that's, that's flat on the ground. Other buildings got it too. That wind is Kind of knocked them off the foundations and has them laying over. And then my main pole barn, uh, that's where I keep all my farm equipment. The wind blew the doors in on the one end and then took the whole wall out, the backside of it. Do you think it was a tornado, Joe? <laughs> I, you know, nobody's said anything. I don't have a clue. A tornado or not, it's a sad ending to a grand old barn that served the Reckingers well over the years, including as a dairy barn. My grandfather dairied for a while and helped my dad dairy for a while. Also had a horse barn on one end of it for the horses when they were using horses back in the good old days. But now... Uh, well, we're probably going to have to dig a hole and uh, throw it in the hole and burn what we can. It was a Kane County historic building and a landmark, literally, for passers-by. Lots of memories in that 142-year-old barn. Yeah, I milked a lot of cows in there, and my dad and I had a lot of sweat and blood involved there, but, uh, you know, it's memories. That's something nobody can take from you. And somewhere in that rubble? Original buggy that my grandfather quartered my grandmother in. They called it a cutter, but it was a sleigh that they put behind a horse. I don't think I'm going to find that in very good shape. Well, I'm sorry for your loss, Joe. I'm thinking, though, that you can blame this on Tom Skilling's retirement. (laughs) Yeah, he wanted to go out with a bang, didn't he? (laughs) (laughs) But I'm sure he didn't want to see anything like this. No, not at all. Certainly not. Our best to Tom and to the Reckingers as they recover from that storm. On the food calendar, it's National Toast Day. Avocado on mine, please. That's the business of food on 720 WGN. Michael Miller, uh, the economist, frequently joins us and he was telling us about the opportunity for all of us that people regarded as disabled present between the ages of 25 and 54 one in 10 americans are considered disabled and it sounds like industry is starting to recognize how available and productive they can be because of the way we all learned to work from home during the pandemic are these people getting jobs mike are they getting hired they, they must be based upon the data. So we'll see two things. One, their wages are going up faster than the able-bodied. 
which means that they're being enticed by this higher money to to work. We also know, though, that that workers would never be continuously paid if they don't generate the the value to the firm that is you know that the wages represent. And so, uh, clearly, the uh, the workers' productivity is equal to what they are paid. But most importantly. You know, the, the idea of unemployment is essentially self-reported. You get a call from the Commerce Department and or the Labor Department, and, and unemployed means that you are not working, uh, You, however, you have been looking in the past four weeks. And the unemployment rate uh, of the disabled has fallen dramatically, and the gap between the able-bodied and the disabled, the gap itself fell 75%. So that means that the disabled are making major inroads in the uh, labor market uh, to become, uh, what do we call it, productive. Uh, and, and they're being paid for it. And, and this is great news. I want to skip ahead to the U.S. debt and deficit. Um, what's the latest read on that? That comes up once in a while when we talk about the upcoming election, but not that much, to be honest with you. Uh, what, what should I know about that right now, Mike? Well, you know, uh, we've since I was in uh, in college, actually in the 1970s, people were saying, "Well, the government can't go further in debt. We can't handle, you know, a trillion dollars worth of debt." Now we're at 35 trillion. Now, there's there's one aspect to the debt that's that's interesting is that the that the uh, preponderance of the dollar as the currency, uh, the reserve currency of the world, is declining slowly, but it is declining. And what some economists found was if this decline in the U.S. dollar as the reserve currency continues, even if we try to be a a little more frugal with our debt, it's going to be harder and harder to borrow. uh, They argue that the uh, borrowing cost for the United States would rise if the dollar is no longer the reserve currency that it is at the present time. And that we will be able to get, say, 30% less out of the market than we do now because people will be putting their money into other uh, securities to hold as a reserve. And uh, so this is, you know, one, it's always been troublesome. Uh, it's not the fact that we worry that, say, the Chinese will take its trillion dollars worth of holdings and sell it tomorrow to hurt the U.S. It is that the, Jap- the Chinese and the Japanese and the Germans, the next time we want to borrow new money, they won't be there. And the the issue that these authors were looking at is that with the reduction in the reserve currency status of the dollar, there will be fewer people kind of at the auctions uh, to provide or to offer money to buy U.S. treasuries, which means the treasury either has to raise interest rates or we have to borrow less for sure. So it's, it's a, it is a uh, it is an issue. We have to be very careful uh, when it comes to the the debt a little more so now with the uh, with the situation regarding the dollar as a reserve currency. You know, at a level that I can feel and appreciate, maybe my listeners too, of course, is, okay, so how much of my tax dollars go to debt management and how much of them go to services? Mm-hmm. And if the, right. you know, the roads aren't paved or we think that we're not getting enough for it, I wonder it's because how much of the money is actually going to service the debt. Well, the service on the debt is uh, is approaching a trillion dollars. Uh, not that long ago, it was only about 300, 350, 350 billion. And the reason for this change is, of course, the higher and higher interest rates, which, by the way, are normal interest rates. What we had for yeah. since the Great Recession, I mean, they were abnormally low, near zero for, what, 15 years or whatever. Yeah. 
But uh, what we're, we're now back into what would considered normal times, but we borrowed so much money uh, that with the interest rates going back to normal, the debt service is what it's called, um, has risen, it has more than doubled, and it, 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 may, it may very quickly approach a trillion dollars a year, uh, which means it's, it's more money than, than I, I'm trying to think of which one it was. It isn't Social Security. I think it may be there's more money on the debt service than there is on defense. Uh, so it's it's becoming a larger and larger portion of the government's uh, allocation of its funds. Mm. Something to think about. There's Michael Miller. He's it an is. economics professor at Western Washington U and emeritus prof over at DePaul. Nice to talk to you, Michael. We'll do it again soon, I know. I hope so, John. Great talking to you.